0: Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelber.
1: And this is Chris Jackson. And as Fred is... You know, Fred likes passing his spare time by arranging, modifying, going through formulas or formulae, depending on how you want to.
0: Yeah, I didn't know that. I was trying to write down this title and it was going to be the plural of formula. And you said it's formula E, A-E at the end of it. I'm like, really? Mm -hmm. I I had to look it up. And of course you were right. It's like, (laughs) I, I found early, early on, I think it was in a chemistry class in high school, actually, that one of the teachers said, well, if. You know, to and I think we were balancing equations or something like that. Right. And and it was, it was part of algebra and it was part of chemistry and it was, well, to understand a formula is, well, what happens if you make this one go to zero or if you make this variable go twice as big? You know, how does that affect the 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 balance of the equation? What what else changes to keep it in 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 uh, you know how does it manipulate these? How does changing one thing change the result that you get and sure. and so I I've done that all my life is I get a, an equation like the Weibel equation or whatever and I you know nowadays I stick it in a, a spreadsheet and and try it different ways and and see what happens and Weibull, for example is you know I even in the courses I took in decades and decades ago they'd show you the a plot with you know, a, a beta 0.5 and a beta of one and a beta of two, and there'd be three curves on this single plot, which wasn't really useful for me because I wasn't doing it. I was just looking at a plot, going, "All right, whatever." Um, later, I found, you know, I think you had one in your webinar where you were looking at. You would change the slider, and it would show you the value of, I think, the failure rate or something like that, in which or the beta value, and it would change the shape of the curve or the way it was located, all this stuff. And it was very dynamic. You could play with it and see, try to grasp what, what this equation was, how the formulas and symbols interacted to visually change something. But that has served me well over the years, especially when I started doing what-if stuff. It was like, well, what if you know the failure rate doubles? How long before we would actually see that change? in, in the field and stuff like that. That really, really helped me is in in interpreting it. And I know you've talked about it in a couple of webinars about, and, and actually taking some, uh, point of pride in, well, we're not, we're going to talk about Weibel, but we're not going to show you any formulas because you need (laughs) to understand it first.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, a lot of examples spring to mind. I mean, um, Not everyone, but a lot of people might be able to write down the equation for that helps you find the standard deviation of a uh, um, of a random variable if you Mm -hmm. know what the probability density curve is. But even after saying those terms or just talking saying those words out loud in this podcast, some people might be sleeping with their eyes open already. What's (laughs) for me is way more important is to understand that the standard deviation is actually based on the hypothetical moment of inertia. And moment of inertia means a lot more to a lot of engineers out there. Essentially, it's how hard it is to spin something. And long story short, standard deviation is based on the moment of inertia of the histogram of data points you have. The harder it is for that uh, uh, histogram uh, to be spun is actually analogous to how far away those data points are from the middle of those data points. And that's way more important.
0: Well, I, you know, I know that you're not ice skating at the moment, but you have a rink, you've got ice out there. So you could demonstrate this by, you know, doing a quick video of you and, you, you know, spinning and then mm-hmm. put your arms out and you'd slow down and you put your arms in tight and you'd speed up in, in your rotation. And I think that's what you mean by the the moment of, of uh, uh, I don't know, spin, inertia, whatever. I don't know what the right term is.
1: Yeah, to to be clear, I mean, me on ice skates or any sort of skates is not going to demonstrate any physical phenomenon apart from gravity. Um, And (laughs) so, but... So hockey uh, wasn't
0: part of your Australian uh, background? (laughs) Well,
1: if you say hockey in Australia, that by default means field hockey. Uh, So in Australia, it's hockey and ice hockey. In North America, it's hockey and field hockey. So, you know, we did a bit of hockey...
0: Yeah, we're we're yeah, separated by a common die. language. That's what that, right. that problem is. So anyway, it, but the idea is, is that if you're watching the, a, a a highly trained Olympic skater and and which is not me, uh, which is not you, know, not me either. Mm-hmm. But if so, if you have a big standard deviation, you're not going to spin very fast. If you tighten up your standard deviation, it's good. Now, the other place i learned about standard deviation was in in control charting and and looking at the variability of the products we're putting out. And it became obvious that my boss was not all that brilliant about it because he just wanted us to change the average. And I'm like, Hmm, we're not even sure where that is. This standard deviation is, you know, massive and it goes across both of our limits. Now if we reduce that and not change the mean, we can actually save a whole lot of money. And luckily for me, he said, Oh, I'll prove it. And so the next couple of months we went off and did things to reduce the variability and um and it and it worked but it it wasn't spinning it was very much staying inside the requirements or, or specifications in that regard
1: right and i think yes control charting is a good one uh, and control charting is essentially uh, i'm still trying to find the best analogy maybe the, the one of the better analogies i use can have have used for control charting over the years is that imagine You are trying to make sure you you are either driving a car or you're the passenger in a taxi, and you want whoever's the driver, whether it's you or somebody else, to be in control of that car. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. If they're not in control, even if in this nanosecond they're right in the middle of the lane, but they're not in control, bad things are going to happen. Just a matter of time. And so, control charting is a a, a sneaky way of helping you, for example, um, interpret or find signs and symptoms. So, if you're driving your car and you notice there's some sort of play in the steering wheel, you know, you you have to turn it a good five degrees before it starts, you know, making a, a noticeable impact on wheels going from left to right, which is a bad sign. Or if there's a weird noise, or if there's vibration in the steering wheel. Mm -hmm. All these things, which are symptoms of bad things to come, but still, you could still perhaps quite safely drive your car. Um, Just taking into consideration the flying the steering wheel or just learning how to tolerate the vibration or putting on headphones to block out the noise, whatever. (laughs) Um, You can perhaps still technically go and drive your car safely as of today, but you should reasonably anticipate something bad is going to happen in the near future if the steering wheel is only loosely connected to where you point it um
0: yeah, yeah Control training is relatively straightforward the the math for it was what they created it back in the 1920s
1: yeah yeah you know? no, sweetheart sweetheart Shuhart. yeah shoeheart yeah Shuhart. Uh,
0: and you know and they're dealing with, and, and they were using range as a surrogate for standard deviation because calculating right. standard deviation was a pain. We don't have mm-hmm. that excuse anymore nope. yet. One of the things I find is that what I find intimidating is when you run into all these formulas that have a whole bunch of summation signs. So the sum of squares, that kind of stuff. And it was a artifact of the way people could do calculations, you know, uh, there's other formulas today that are full of integrals and all kinds of other weird symbols. And just, did you know, I, the complete aside here, Chris, is I, I, over the holidays, I was looking at some of our analytics and the number one traffic on uh, the webinars that we do was yours on basic math symbols. Really? Yeah. It was like 20,000 uh, views or something like that. It is it is off the charts compared to everything else. Yeah. Uh, I've been telling you, stay with the basics, but people are trying to understand plus signs and equal signs. And here we're talking about integrals. So so I have to, but the idea is, is that we've got all kinds of cool tools these days that we can, you know, play with the formula to see what happens. And, and Weibel is one of those that, you know, if you, if you manipulate it a few times and you get, you know, this is what a straight line looks like. And if I get add another failure mechanism to it. It's going to make a hockey stick look, you know, whether it's field hockey stick or ice hockey stick, it be, you know, bent kind of thing, or does it make an S shape or whatever? And now I have the advantage of having taken a full year of, of uh, regression analysis and in, in a graduate course. And so a lot of that stuff I had to dig into the background of and understand it much more deeply yeah, when I look at a at a curve, it tells a story, and some of that's because I try to understand what's driving the shape of that curve. And I think that's been one of your points a lot of times, and why you often say, "Well, we're going to talk about Yable, but we're not going to show you the formula."
1: The thing about formula, formulae, or formulas is they just give you a number, and so that's all that can be what exactly what you need. Sometimes you need that number, and that's okay, mm-hmm. but what is often more important is, like you said, the story. What's the story? What is the story behind how this thing fails? And it's just a, uh, I mean, for example, if you used to say we need to find when our thing transitions from wherein to something else in order to work out when we need to do servicing intervals and everything else, to the uninitiated, that sounds like a horrible thesis level, dissertation, analysis involving numbers and... Those integral integrals. signs you're talking about yeah the intervals
0: and, and good stuff
1: and you know what um like uh like that fourth enemy of reliability that Carl carson um introduced to me yesterday this the screaming genius the screaming genius might be <laughs> able to create a perfectly justifiable approach which involves integrals and you know lots of other greek alphabet letters but
0: and then the we come is- up with a, you know oh it's going to be three hundred and eighteen days and fifteen minutes. That's the point when it transitions from here to there. And like right, okay,
1: okay. But what what most people don't understand is that if you do viable analysis, you can be a master of viable analysis, and not use a single equation, but look at the story that the data points are are drawing in front of your eyes, and you can come up with essentially the same figure in a matter of minutes if you know. What you're looking for, because all you're looking for just is a particular, essentially elbow in a curve. Mm-hmm. And if you know what that elbow needs to look like, you'd say, "Oh, okay, so that elbow on that curve is about 318." What do you say, 318 hours, 15 minutes, or whatever?
0: Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and, and you, oh. but you don't need to know it to to the second or the day for no. the vast majority of circumstances. All right. Well, after a year, we are short of a year, we got to deal some deal with this. You know, nine months we right. got to deal with it. The the other part yeah, of that is- And, you, I,
1: and, you, and with the servicing intervals, you're going to round it off to the nearest um, useful interval of time. So right. uh, you look at warranty periods, it's either one month, three months, six months, sometimes nine months, and 12 months, and you go 24 months, and that's just that's just how things roll. You're not going to have a warranty period of 15 months, 14 days, six hours, and 17 minutes. Uh, so but then, unless
0: you take a, one of the old cell phones in with a l- little water damage examiner says, well, your warranty <laughs> ran out- Prior to you showing up here, <laughs> you know, so well, there's there's that too.
1: But, but apart from that, that those recalcitrants, as a rule, you're gonna you, all you need to find is an approximate time that things start to wear out, and say, okay, when's the appropriate? I will add that to our three monthly servicing schedule or whatever yeah. it is. You're or not gonna we need use.
0: to change the design because we're shy three months here. We got to pick That's that up
1: exactly. So you Project. don't need to get get that uh, that number down at sixteen decimal points. If you if you can't service or do preventive maintenance any earlier than five hundred d- days, and you realise it's three hundred eighteen, don't worry about refining your estimate. You know, you have to change your design, or you have to change fundamentally change your maintenance philosophy, or something. Um, yep. Yep. it's no point.
0: Well, there's another piece of this though, I, and I've run into this a couple of times where, you know, I, I get this elbow, I'm like, hmm, what's going on here? and the curve itself indicates something's going on it's like the vibration in the steering wheel Hmm, something's different here now a common thing is that it's tipped into wear out we have this mechanism that's dominating a change in what's dominating the rate of failure Uh, instead of this random hand of chance happening now we've got this wear out that's taking over i always check that it's the same with the starting of it is why isn't this straight? And and I start asking those questions. And then I take two or three data points before and after that elbow and go figure out well, what caused that failure? And if they're all exactly the same failure cause, I don't know how to interpret that. There's way more questions. But if it's one side is a completely different failure mechanism than the other side, then I'm like, hmm, okay there are two different things happening here and one's at a higher rate and it's now t- dominating. I don't look at the curve and then, you know, it's the same when you get um, field failures back and, and some it says, well, that was happened in the first week. That must be a manufacturing problem. And yeah, sometimes it is. <laughs> and oftentimes it is. But not always, maybe every one of your product are already in wear out and, you know, in the next two weeks, you're going to get 90% of your products back. Wouldn't you rather not assume that you know the answer until you actually do some work to figure it out?
1: Well, imagine if you're a patient in a hospital, the doctor walks in doing his or her rounds and, um, you know, says, hi, how are you going? And you respond and maybe you've got a croaky voice because whatever ails you is affecting, you know, <laughs> your mm-hmm. lung capacity. And if this, as soon as a doctor hears you say hi, he turns around and walks out because he just confirmed you're not dead. And that's all he or she needs to know for him to, he or she to be happy. You're not going to be particularly impressed with the level of care you're receiving. Um, (laughs) You want a doctor to come in and review your charts and look at your temperature and say, okay, is it hurting here? Do you have any improvement here? Do you have any new pains? Is this, uh, Is this third knee you have starting to uh, tighten up a bit? Whatever. Um, But if a doctor just walks in, confirms you're not dead, and believes, all right, tick that box, and keeps walking down the hallway, you'd be thoroughly unimpressed. But so many engineers and so many managers and and overseers and pharaohs, whoever you want to call these people, that's essentially how they treat many quality and reliability problems. Is it defective yet? No, it's not. Because the number from the formula is 16 microns below upper confidence level, uh, uh, sorry, upper respect specification level. limit. So yeah. ship it. Okay, we're cool. Off you go. But the story behind what's happening might be that, hey, we have a problem here is because even though at the start of its production run, this oxide level was well and truly within tolerance and still technically is, it's, it's, it's moving north <laughs> at a, In an every batch. Yeah, yeah, every
0: batch is getting worse and worse and worse. And
1: Right. No, no. Is, is What's the formula say? Are you good? Is it dead? Are you alive or are you dead? Are you alive? Good. Moving on. No, it's just not the, not the approach you need. Well, that's
0: the, yeah. And that's what I get when I'm looking at a set of data. And I think we've talked about it in a previous episode is that when you get a pile of data, just plot it. Weibel is yeah. a great tool for time to failure data, that kind of stuff. In all kinds of other things because it's so versatile. But I also just do a histogram. I just I don't what and do it two three ways, or I do it, plot it a handful of ways and really try to understand what do I expect versus what am I seeing, and and then dive into where those differences are, where those tweaks are, where those anomaly patterns are, things like that. It it sometimes you can read the story right off the chart, right? Yet. Uh, I highly recommend is like, well, that's a hypothesis. It's not the conclusion. Now go to the next level of let's go verify that. Did you do the mm-hmm. math right? Did your software actually create the right plot for you? You know, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then yeah. also what are the failure mechanisms underneath it, what's really happening?
1: Right, and the other thing too is that when you, when you have a number from a formula, often you're just comparing the number to an arbitrary number someone has put together. That might not be cool either. Um I mean, some a designer might say the specification limit is ten. Um, but historically you've been able to get that characteristic of your manufactured component or whatever to one, which is or one or lower, which is you know an order of magnitude less than the specification limit. That's cool. Mm-hmm. But maybe over time it's drifting up to two or three, and that sort of coincides with more field returns or field failures. And even though it's within the specification limit, If you notice that the uptick of this uh, particular characteristic coincides with more observed problems in the field, then you're a dumb organization if you don't investigate that further. But that also comes back to the formula. The formula says we're cool. It has to be less than or equal to 10. And we're still, it was less than one. Now it's two or three or four, but it's still less than 10. So we're good. No, you're not. Um, the customer tells you if you're good or not. And again, it's just people want to put their brain in park and just uh, wait for everything else to happen around them. Stuff. Well, it was out. one of
0: those, you know, I think it was a physics class that it was the, it was almost every day we walk in a class and we get a quiz, right? And it was one of those kind of professors. And it was just one or two questions. And some of the questions were like, one of the questions I remember from it was, how many piano tuners are in New York City? we're in a physics class good grief tell us you know other quizzes would be if this mass of, of a boulder is rolling down a hill should the should the people in the village across the lake evacuate um i didn't do the math i just said yeah get out get the hell out of there <laughs> they don't have <laughs> insurance but the, the the how many piano tuners were and the whole point of that exercise was if you're confronted with a question or a formula or a stack of data that you're trying to do, what do you think the answer should be? And, and, and I was like, why would you do that? Why don't we just get the calculators out and do it? And he says, well, if you fat finger one extra digit in there and you get an answer, you get an answer. Mm-hmm. It's wrong. But now you don't know that because you didn't even come up with the order of magnitude of what the answer should be or could be. And right. so it was, if you don't have something to compare it to, then you're out. Now, the comparison could be just a, a, a estimate or a guess. It could be a specification and all other things. But it, I think your point is that, well, is the specification right? Now, I know that my guess is not right. Yet, if my math and my guess were both an order of magnitude off, I wouldn't know. I would double underline that answer and and hand it in and I'd get it wrong. But it saved my tail a bunch of times is that, you know, you, I'm looking at this complex equation and I'm working through the math and it's like, okay, this is saying that it has occurred two years before the product was made. Hmm. <laughs> I think that's wrong. know, yes. <laughs> My boss used to call that the sniff test. You know, is it, just, does it smell funky? You know, does it look odd? You know, it's, there's, use your gut sometimes to say, Yeah, that, did I do the calculation right?
1: It's uh, you, your story there. It's, it's a slight, slight tangent, but I think it's a cool story. But uh, I, I like watching documentaries, especially about space and astrophysics and astrobiology and all sorts of things like that. Mm-hmm. And I recall well, that one group of people, sort of more of a thought experiment than anything else, tried to calculate the number of civilizations across the universe. Yeah. Not, just, not just life, that organised life that has come together and works in, in, in a cooperative ways to build infrastructure and everything else that classifies the definition of what a civilization is. And I think okay. he had, they came up with seven parameters, which is, or seven numbers. Number one, how many stars are there? Number two, what fraction of stars have planets in habitable zones?
0: Mm-hmm. Number
1: three, you know, of those planets...
0: Uh, I mean, what, initiated life, at some form or, yeah. Or what that.
1: fraction have you know uh, conditions that would support life? Number four is what. What for? <laughs> given that you have a planet in the habitable zone which has conditions that support life, what is a possibility that or probability that life will then form, etc. And I'm I'm not quoting them perfectly. I can't remember them all. Right. But essentially, the figure they came up with that they having some b- best guesses at these seven parameters was 10,000 civilizations across the universe.
0: Star Trek and Star Wars are still trying to discover the nine hundred thousand, the 90th one, you know, come on, they're, they're working on it. Yeah. On it. <laughs> no, I, I think it's one of those things where that thought experiment and, and that was kind of the way we were taught to answer the question of how many piano tuners, you know, as well, how many people are in, uh, how many people that have pianos, how many, Ron. how often do you need to tune a piano? How long does it take to tune a piano? How many people are required to do all this stuff? And, you know, some work part time and some people went off the rails and went off into the deep mysticism of the philosophy <laughs> of piano tuning. But, you know, we're physicist students, so it was goes with the territory. I think the basic idea here, though, is that if you're dealing with whether it's a control chart or a, a uh, the Weibel curve or uh, what's the one for repairable systems, the homogeneous... Um,
1: um, no, non, no, the non-homogeneous Poisson process.
0: Yeah, or something like that. And you got this equation in front of you. Um, play with it. Get get a piece of paper or get a spreadsheet and play with the different figures and see what kind of results you get. And what does it look like? Plot it. See what it, how it changes and interprets. It gives you a, a a better intuitive feel for what that configuration of random characters and and figures and numbers interprets to. And then when you see patterns, you can go, oh, that's what it's supposed to look like when it's a perfect fit. And that's what it looks like when there's an onset of wearout and so on. And you get an semblance of what's going on and then double check, you know, check yourself and all that good stuff. Um, But if you're confronting a formula of some sort, one form or another, whether it's named or not, and you got a question about it, you know, that could be a topic for a whole podcast, I think. So let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash S-O-R. You can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us. Uh, Chris and I and the other hosts of the show are available through LinkedIn and through our about pages. So plenty of ways for you to get in touch.
1: Absolutely. And it's always always a pleasure. But it's, it's I mean, again, I think one of the first things we're taught as engineers is the formulas because they can be tested and universities get money based on how many people pass tests. But yeah it's all about understanding the story and using that story to make better decisions
0: yep excellent well said chris right we'll talk to you again take care chris
1: you too fred always a pleasure
0: yeah cheers thanks for listening to speaking of reliability we invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes, or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.